You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have any feedback at all, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode of Inside Healthcare, we talk about acupuncture and yoga and a host of other so-called alternative therapies with a health leader in the U.S. government. After that, we explore a newly announced breakthrough in digitalization exploration with NCQA's chief technology officer. But first, a topic we haven't had on this show until now. Our first guest is one of the foremost experts in the U.S. on integrative medicine. When a doctor uses traditional Eastern medical therapies as a complement to traditional Western therapies, boom, you got integrative medicine. Of course, acupuncture, yoga, and meditation are all in the so-called alternative mix, but what are the other complementary therapies? And what about healing crystals and, and color light therapy and a host of other therapies that some people rely on? How have some alternative therapies become legitimized? And what are the risks of unregulated therapies? Okay, this isn't an easy one-time conversation, but today's guest has studied and taught integrative medicine for nearly 30 years. So he's seen it all, he's heard it all, and he's ready to answer all questions and more. Benjamin Kliegler, MD, MPH, is Executive Director of the Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation at the Veterans Health Administration. He's a board-certified family physician, working as a clinician, educator, a researcher, and administrative leader in the field of complementary and integrative medicine. He teaches at a number of institutions in and around New York. He's professor of family and community medicine at ICANN Mount Sinai School of Medicine and was vice chair and research director of the Mount Sinai Beth Israel Department of Integrative Medicine. So that's a very short version of a very long list of accolades and experiences for the doctor, but they all add up to a nearly 30-year career as an advocate for integrative medicine. At NCQA's 2023 Quality Talks, Dr. Kliegler talked about whole health and how it relates to his work. So we talked about everything in and around integrative medicine, but it starts with whole health. Here's my talk with Dr. Kliegler. So what's your definition of whole health? Sometimes right. we talk about it when we're trying to integrate behavioral health treatment and diagnosis and everything around it and trying to integrate that with physical and say there there is no separation. They're they're right. interlinked and we shouldn't we should no longer be thinking of them as as being separate. And that's just one way of of defining or talking about whole health. You can't really have whole health if you don't have at the core of that idea of not separating mind and spirit and you know what's important of someone emotionally from what's going on with them physically so that's a really foundational concept in whole health i think we go a little bit further than that um and so the definition that we use is 
Whole health is an approach to care that empowers and equips people to take charge of their lives and their health and well-being. And those two words, I think, empower and equip are really at the center of it. Because, you know, if you think about it, although many people who go into, let's say, primary care or other branches of medicine, of course, they want to empower and equip their patients. That's not their primary. It's not the first thing they think of when they sit down in the office with a patient, because what they're thinking of is, what are the problems I have to address today? What are the treatments or diagnostic tests or medications or, you know, what do I have to do um, for this person? And the idea of whole health is kind of flipping that on its head and saying, you have to start with, do I know what's important to this person? Because ultimately the changes they have to make in their life to manage their diabetes better or deal with their depression or whatever it is that's holding them back they're going to make them because of what's important to them. And so the idea is that as a healthcare team, if we're not looking at that, if we don't know what it is that's giving a patient a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives, we're just never going to be as effective as we could be. So, so the definition of whole health is that we're still committed to taking care of those diseases, just like you know conventional medicine does, but we have to go bigger. And part of going bigger too is we have to expand the toolbox that we have at our disposal and that we can uh, help our patients access. And by that, I mean, um, you know, conventional medicine has its tools, uh, medications, diagnostic tests, procedures, and they work very well for certain situations. And then there are others where they don't work well. And so the idea of expanding the toolbox, so it includes things like whole health coaching, working with a health coach, that's one example. Working with uh, a peer facilitator, so you're actually in a group with fellow veterans or other people addressing some of the issues around social isolation and loneliness that end up really contributing to health problems. And then being able to access some of the complementary and integrative health approaches like acupuncture or yoga or Tai Chi so that you can begin to develop skills for yourself to really get to where you wanna be. So the idea of whole health in the VA is that we're both uh, kind of stepping back a little bit so that the disease-oriented approach is part of what we do, but not the whole thing, so that we can really look at the whole person and even look at their family and community as part of the um, really determinants of their health. Uh, so we're stepping back, the aperture of the lens is getting bigger, and then we have more tools and options and, and opportunities that we can bring into the engagement with the person uh, to really help them move where they want to move. So, uh, I, I wanted to add in there, when we talk about health equity, uh, you were mentioning about de determinants uh, along the way. Um, one of the issues with health equity is a level of distrust among patients that even when you finally are, are identifying people who are underserved, and providing them with services in one way or another, um, they still don't trust that right. the clinicians are there or that people are there providing for them, even when they see it in front of them. So um, how do you, how, how do we start to change that? Right. Well, I think that's that commitment to health equity and to addressing the social and structural determinants, that's a huge part of whole health because, um, if you don't feel like your voice is being heard as the patient or the person, and you don't feel like the decision-making around your health uh, really includes a process of listening to your voice. I mean, you know, there's a reason they talk now about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So by inclusion, we really mean 
is your voice being included in the conversation? And so I think fundamentally, the idea of whole health, of putting the patient at the center, making them, helping them be the driver of where the care plan goes, uh, informed by the expertise of the clinician, but uh, in partnership, uh, I think that's really an essential piece to moving towards equity. And, and I think the other part of it is, uh, part of whole health is this idea of a commitment to understanding the whole person and their environment. Um, and you have to ask about things like your housing situation and are you um, being held back by any kind of, uh, you know, maybe it's a gender prejudice, maybe it's racism, maybe it's um, financial issues, whatever it might be, we have to know about it. So when we talk about whole health with clinicians and staff in the VA, um, we talk about this conversation about social determinants being a key. And then luckily in the VA, we have the advantage of being uh, a really integrated health system that actually can address a lot of those things. We have uh, the Veteran Benefits Administration to help with things like housing and education and financial problems. So we really have a leg up on some other health systems in terms of when we do identify those issues, not around everything. I mean, we can't fix racism, but for a lot of things, we do have a way to reach out and help people address some of those barriers that they're experiencing. So um, that's one of the most exciting things I think about whole health is that it gives us a, a really clear and kind of indisputable opening into that conversation with patients. And um, just think you can't really do the kind of care we're talking about without getting into that conversation and without the kind of listening that we're talking about. That's where I think the connection is. Yeah, I wanted to highlight the the obvious right now that we're talking to somebody who is in uh, you know an executive in the Veterans Administration uh, on the federal level. So the fact that we're having this conversation at all, not with a private company, but with um, you know an entity within the Fed, uh, is very significant. It it, it really is, uh, and and with all of these ideas, person centered health and whole health. Uh, and uh, addressing gaps in equity. Uh, how is it going within the VA? I mean, what what are your, well, actually, what are your goals? Not talking about what are your successes. First, you say, what are your goals? And right. then how far have you gone and, and how much further do you, do you feel you, you want to go within maybe the next two or three years? Right. I would say our goal is to make sure that every veteran who is interested in this kind of approach to care um, has the opportunity to access it easily wherever it is that they're getting their care, including whether they're getting their care virtually because, you know, telehealth has become a big thing uh, in the VA as well as, you know, everywhere else in the health sector. So um, we don't know what percentage, you know, VA has about 6 million enrolled veterans who are actively getting care. We don't really know. We know there's tons of interest from veterans. We don't know what percentage of people really want to be doing this because we know some people really are content to just go to the doctor, get their blood pressure medication, go home, go on with their lives. They don't necessarily want to engage in this bigger way. But we do know that a lot of people want to. And so just to give you one example of that, in last fiscal year, in fiscal year 22, we had over a million veterans out of those 6 million uh, participate in some fashion in some kind of whole health program. I mean, not everybody was fully engaged. Obviously, some of them went to an introductory class or uh, had a couple of acupuncture visits. So, you know, the range of how engaged people are is huge, but a million people. I mean, that's a million people. And that's uh, 
pushing close to 16% of the active uh, VA users. Um, I would say we're kind of using the number we imagine that in the long run, give or take 30% of veterans will really be interested in engaging with this on a regular basis. And so we're driving within the next uh, three or four years, I think, to get uh, to where the infrastructure can support that level of engagement. I mean, we are making amazing progress, I have to say. And I, I, I've been in this field of sort of whole person integrative health for almost 30 years. Most of my time I was in the private sector working at academic health centers. Uh, and we made progress slowly but surely. But in VA, we are, this is turbocharged. I mean, the pace at which this is spreading, the kind of support we have from our undersecretary of health, from our VA secretary, they are fully on board with this. And it's allowing us to just really move this forward at a rapid pace. And it, it's it's kind of shocking. You don't think of a large government bureaucracy being the place that could really move this forward. But truthfully, one of the advantages we have is that we are not a for-profit system. And um, it's all about the veteran. And you know, much of the uh, American healthcare industry, even the nonprofit hospitals, as we know, uh, there are people who profit from the intake at nonprofit hospitals. And so, uh, you know, I think we have the advantage that no resources get kind of wasted that way. And the other advantage we have is that VA is both the insurer, the payer, and the healthcare deliverer. So there's no question, like if we, if, if our leadership as a system decides that it makes sense to have health coaching available to everybody because we have data that shows that it leads to better outcomes, it will get paid for. We don't have to go and convince 10 different insurance companies that it's worth paying for. And that turns out to be a huge advantage. When we talk about integrative medicine, we're talking about yoga, uh, acupuncture, uh, meditation, uh, tai chi, and a, a handful of others, just a few, because I'm sure there are many but in, in your terms for the VHA, there's a couple that are on the list. Right. Um, so the fact that you're exposing them, uh, people to them, even if they don't take advantage through the VA, now they know that these are uh, available to them. So that's what I wanted to ask you about were uh, the idea of integrative medicine in general. Uh, tell me from your perspective and your experience uh, after a number of decades, how have things changed um, as far as integrating these uh, therapies? Yeah. Well, I think uh, we're really seeing a sea change, obviously. I mean, in my opinion, really seeing a sea change in the last, oh, let's just say eight to 10 years um, in how conventional medicine and the healthcare industry is looking at this whole area of complementary therapies. Part of that is that the evidence base, the number of studies and clinical trials that have been done showing that these things can be effective for a variety of conditions just has continued to grow. So for example, take acupuncture. Uh, a couple of years ago, Medicare decided to cover acupuncture for seniors with low back pain. And that was because the evidence has accumulated that it works. Uh, same reason, you know, I think it was 2016 or 17, American College of Physicians, which is a, a very prominent and in some ways conservative organization, uh, they included a number of these therapies as first-line treatments for chronic back pain. You know, before pharmaceuticals, before surgery, they included things like acupuncture, yoga, uh, tai chi. And 
And that became at that point, part of the official guidelines. So that kind of thing wasn't happening 15 or 20 years ago, but it is now happening more and more. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't still a, a, a lot of uh, skepticism, opposition. You know, the the fact that most physicians in particular who are in practice uh, trained 15, 20, 25 years ago and didn't have the opportunity to learn about these things, um, that has a big impact on people's sense. You know, we all want to believe that we continue to be flexible and learn and grow, but you know, we get stuck in our ways. I think that people that are graduating from uh, medical school now, they just assume that acupuncture is a normal thing. They assume that getting a patient to do yoga is going to be worthwhile. They they don't, it's not weird to them. Um, there are certainly other therapies that are still far out on the fringe that don't have adequate evidence. Um, but the reason we picked the, there are actually eight different approaches that we cover in VA, it was because we did a, a, a fairly rigorous process of, of examining the evidence and concluded that these were the ones that had sufficient evidence to make it um, uh, reasonable to include them in the benefits package. And I think the other thing that happened, and it still happens, is people lump all of these complementary therapies together into one package so that they end up thinking of, you know, let's just randomly say crystal healing in the same sentence as they think about acupuncture or meditation. I have nothing against crystals, but they don't have the same kind of evidence. And so you end up hearing things like, do you believe in complementary therapies? And it's not like, like, do you believe in blood pressure medication? No, I want to know that it works or it doesn't work. So, you know, I think it's really important for people to move away from lumping all of these things into one category and just start to look at each one individually, look at the evidence, look at the safety that ends up being a really big factor because so many of these integrative approaches are so safe. I mean, meditation, as long as you're not driving or operating a forklift, it's not going to hurt you. So the worst case scenario is you learn something, it doesn't help you you know, every medication and I'm a big, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in pharmacological management and in the conventional approaches, but everything we do in conventional medicine has side effect potential. And a lot of these complementary therapies, it's so minimal that why not give it a try if there is some evidence. So I, I well, think it's let, really, let me ask you about yeah, stand sure. the idea of standards in, in general. Yeah. Um, and to what extent should I, you know, trying to phrase it that integrative medicine or uh, non-traditional, non-Western, you know, oriented medicine, medicine that's, you know, not that wasn't used or wasn't taught in medical schools, let's say in the Western world 30 years ago. Um, what how should they be viewed? Should they be viewed under the same standards as uh, that we've been viewing the other ones? And we've already answered some of the questions uh, in terms of safety. There yes. has to be safety standards in terms of dosage, uh, that concept of dosage. There has to be something in there. Uh, it, and the insurance companies are certainly going to hold people's you know feet to the fire that if you want to have coverage for it, you have to have evidence and uh, of, of efficacy, uh, at least as some kind of a litmus test. Uh, and then NCQA, we talk about quality and we talk about it being science-based and evidence-based. Right. So for all of these sakes, um, if I say the word standard, then in terms of I am and in terms of uh, 
complementary uh, therapies. Um, what's what's your response? What's your thought? Um, honestly, I think the standards are the same across the board for anything we do with our patients. I think you need to um, have evidence that something is going to be helpful. I think you have to have evidence or, or confidence that it's going to be safe. Um, I think you have to know that the patient or the person wants it and is interested in it. Um, but I don't think there's any question of the standards being different for complementary integrative health than they are for the rest of what we do in conventional medicine. I really don't. I mean, I think the one thing that people don't always do that I think is important is really have that weighing of the scales between safety and the level of evidence for effectiveness. So for me, any intervention, whether it's conventional taught in medical school or not, if it has a very high, a very large safety margin, you can tolerate a little bit more ambiguity in the evidence base, right? Because, you know, the possibility of harm is so low. If something has a high potential for harm, a new chemotherapy, let's say, you better know that it's going to work, right? Because otherwise you're really not doing the right thing. So, but that's a, that's an equation that really, I think applies across the board that applies to a, a surgical procedure that applies to a new medication. You know, we have to weigh um, the level of evidence and the knowledge about the safety margin. And I, I don't think people always take that into consideration, but the fact is we do that in conventional medicine all the time, except that we sometimes don't pay enough attention to the potential for adverse effects because we think, well, this is the standard care. So, you know, I'm going to prescribe Motrin. I don't have to, you know, be concerned about the potential for side effects because it's what everybody does. So I think there is that issue, but, but that's more something that we all need to embrace across the board. The, the need for evidence of effectiveness applies to complementary integrative therapies as much as it does to anything in conventional medicine. We have, of course, a lot of clinicians, uh, practitioners out in the uh, in our listening audience right now. What do you want to tell them about uh, integrative health, integrating um, non-traditional Western medicine uh, and the concept of whole health in general? Most physicians are already doing a lot of this or most healthcare professionals, right? Most people went into this business because they want to listen to people, they want to get to know people, they want to understand what's important to people. Um, the setup of the way we practice and the way we're asked to practice, it doesn't always support that, right? So we sometimes get pushed away from that. But the idea that this whole health or whole person concept is like really foreign or brand new or something hard to grasp, it's the most simple thing. And for most people, it's the reason they went into medicine. Um, so I think that's foundational because sometimes when I give a talk to a group of primary care docs, let's say, uh, they come back at the end and they say, isn't this just good primary care? And I say, yes. And, and you know, we need to really create environments where we're supported in doing that, which is part of why this whole idea of team-based care, multidisciplinary care, we we can't deliver whole health. I mean, we know now that we can't even deliver good primary care without a team-based approach, right? That's the current standard that primary care is moving to. So, so I think that's the first thing I want people to know. This is not something foreign or new or different. This is something you've always known from the time you decided to go into healthcare, especially true of nurses, even more because, you know, nursing at its core has this philosophy of caring for the whole person. 
And then the second part is, I think, same thing. You you want your patients to have access to everything that might be helpful to them that's safe. And it turns out that over the last 10 years, 15 years, we've really learned a lot. Uh, a, a lot of new information has come through, very high quality information about uh, some new tools that we can bring into our, our work with patients. And you don't have to tap into all of them at once. You don't have to ever approach all of them, but to sort of dip your toe in the water and say, well, what if I started to think about meditation or yoga as part of my toolbox? And yes, of course you have the issue of how can I get it paid for for the patient? Can they afford it? Uh, but there's a lot of progress in that area. There's a lot of research now, for example, on mindfulness training for underserved populations delivered virtually. And there's some really good outcomes that people are seeing. So you don't even have to deal with the barrier of people having trouble getting to, to the office for the class. So definitely there's still barriers and there are access challenges and, and coverage challenges. But, but I think people need to be aware that the evidence has accumulated to the point where there's really no reason not to go into this space and, and, and just trying out some of these things does not commit you to trying out things with your patients that you don't think are adequately supported by evidence. Dr. Ben Kliegler, Executive Director of the Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation at the Veterans Health Administration. A fascinating dialogue that I look forward to continuing in a later show. Everyone, before our next interview, I want to tell you about The Place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. I'm talking about NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education, training, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. So register now. You can sign up right now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. Ed Yerkeson is Chief Technology Officer at NCQA. We met him in episode 81 when he'd just come in the door here. And now 25 episodes later, he is back with a big announcement. Dateline, May 11th, 2023. Headline, NCQA makes engine software requirements open source, expanding access to HEDIS digital content. So this is an article on our blog, and you'll find the the, uh, link for this in this episode's description. Here's the opening paragraph, though. The National Committee for Quality Assurance today announced it is publishing requirements and open source software for interpreting and executing clinical quality language, CQL, so that any organization or software developer can use HEDIS digital content services. Okay, so what does this mean for you, our listeners? Well, if you're into clinical informatics and data crunching, well, congratulations, this is right up your alley. But you know what? For the rest of us, this breakthrough development for NCQA is a milestone in the digitalization of healthcare. Let me put it like this. If your company is required to use our HEDIS measures or any quality measures from us or anybody else for that matter, 
you've probably spent hours figuring out how to digitize your data. But what about interoperability? How will other companies read your data if different software packages run their workflows? And if you work with NCQA towards certification, how do you efficiently and effectively parse data to fill out all those digital online forms? These are pain points. They come from trying the stuff out. We try and, and, and error. But the solution to these pain points, first, develop a single industry-agreed-upon digital standard for exchanging data. Then add software that helps run it. And if you're Ed Yerkeson's team, you go the extra mile. Make the software open-sourced so everyone in the healthcare ecosystem can add to it. And as different groups adapt it to their needs, everyone can benefit. Here's Ed to break it down for us. Let me explain a little bit about our process and what we've done. So NCQA right now is in the process of creating digital quality measures. And by the end of the year, we should have um, all of our measures in a digital format. And what this means is that we are using a language called CQL and based on FHIR data, that is F-H-I-R. And the CQL engine that we have open sourced is really a calculator. So the way I think about this and explain this is my, um, my 13-year-old daughter, who's in seventh grade, came and said that she needed a scientific calculator. You know, and this is a calculator that does about nine things. And if you remember the horror of uh, algebra and geometry, it does cosine and sine and tangent and what have you. And you could buy this from Canon or HP or Texas Instruments. And as long as it's any calculator that does these nine things, it's sufficient for middle school and high school math. It's probably insufficient to get your PhD in economics but it does, it solves its purpose. What we have with our engine is a calculator. It is uh, a calculator that has the necessary functionality to compute HEDIS measures. And think of this as the kind of math necessary for HEDIS. Um, and by open sourcing this, this engine, we're providing the calculator out to the community to help advance digital quality and organizations can use this to calculate HEDIS or to create their own measurements uh, around quality, around care gaps, around really anything that they need to analyze in their ecosystem. So our purpose of doing this was really to, to advance digital quality measurement, to convene the thought leaders throughout the, the ecosystem together in order to advance uh, our calculator. Um, our calculator is written in the uh, .NET or C Sharp platform, and this will enable others to take our, our engine and extend it, improve it, utilize it in a variety of different ways. So what kinds of problems have companies had in the recent past? In, um, in trying to digitize uh, their uh, records? Well, the, the first problem organizations have is data standards. And this gets into interoperability and FHIR, F-H-I-R, or Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource. Um, FHIR is very straightforward. It's really five things. 
Uh, it's REST APIs and JSON. Now that sounds scary, but my 16-year-old son is in high school. He's a sophomore in high school taking AP Java, and he is learning REST APIs and JSON. So what this means is FIRE is high school level computer science. It's also a data model, and it's also a series of value sets. What that means is uh, you can't just type in any race or ethnicity. You have to choose from a pick list. You can't type in any state. You have to choose from a list of states in the United States. More technically, it'll be used to identify uh, clinical data using CPT codes, uh, ICD-9 and 10 codes, things of that nature. Um, and then the last piece of FHIR, number the fifth uh, part of the FHIR definition, is it's the mandated exchange standard between health systems, payers, and the public and people between patients and or beneficiaries. Um, so it is what uh, the industry has adopted to exchange healthcare data. Um, now, what our engine's gonna allow you to do is do math on top of that data. And it enables, we're enabling this math. Um, our use case is to do digital quality measurement, um, to, uh, to do math to calculate our HEDIS measures. But this will also enable organizations to calculate our HEDIS measures and understand where you can make quality improvements, where you could um, you can improve care by closing care gaps. So, in terms of um, in terms of digitizing, we're talking about software that's able to take files and take data that we're digitizing and to uh, parse it so that somebody else yes. would be able to take. And we're finding a standard that everybody would be able to use. The standard is taking your data and parsing it, and then when you hand that that file off to somebody else, they were able to take the parsed, the uh, broken down information and have it reinterpreted by their own software, something and like that. CQL, the clinical quality language, it's a, uh, it is a software language um, designed to be read and utilized by clinical informaticists. So this isn't uh, an extreme programming language. Um, it's, it's a language that is written in a way um, to be interpreted and understood by maybe not your 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 surgeon, but a clinical informaticist, uh, somebody that is a clinician working with data. Okay, I'm, I'm going to jump up to a, an eagle eye kind of view. Okay. Um, on the show, at the very least, we talk about the difference between digitizing and digitalizing. And, and, you know, and different people have different versions of it. But in general, the last couple of years, NCQA has encouraged companies to digitize, at the least, electronic health records and other study data that they have for the sake of maybe even getting to today, what we're mm -hmm. talking about exactly today, being able to take all that data and actually parse it out in a way that they can share it effectively with uh, other companies and other uh, entities. Digitalizing is the idea of taking your whole workflow, your whole ecosystem, and elevating it to, uh, to a digital realm so that everything that you do, not just a couple of files or certain kinds of files, but everything that you do now can be uh, interpreted and we can use computers and we can use 
higher levels and better levels of communication in order to be able to, to, to bring them out. What do you say to encourage companies yeah, who are, you know, they're, they're just at the point now where they're finding these pain points and they're having growing pains in their digitalization. So how do we help to move them forward? Well, this is part of our, our path forward. So right now, HEDIS measures themselves, um, when NCQA delivers HEDIS measures, we're actually delivering, think of it as a Word document or a PDF. We're delivering text in English that describes calculations. Um, this is now going to give us the ability to not just describe how a calculation should be written, but actually deliver the calculations themselves. And this will enable more standardization across uh, the different HEDIS vendors. Um, it should reduce their uh, their cost of maintaining HEDIS measures. It should it will make HEDIS measures more ubiquitous and available throughout the healthcare ecosystem. Um, these HEDIS measures are really the de facto standard for quality. And our measures are utilized in the industry because we, um, we're neutral. We're, our consensus process enables NCQA to create measures using the best uh, understanding in the country around a clinical practice guideline. Okay, so then what's the call to action? So the call to action for uh, for this announcement is to to bring together um, organizations that are using CQL, and many of these organizations also um, deal with the calc the CQL calculators, and we are trying to convene the community in order to improve the calculation engines, these calculators. Um, so think of making the scientific calculator faster or more capable. Um, that's, that's what we're looking to do. Now, our engine is capable to deal with the math concepts that we need in HEDIS, and we want to make that available throughout uh, the healthcare ecosystem for other use cases. Um, and as other use cases uh, get coded in and enhancements are needed on the engine it will it will improve the engine that's what i was going to ask you was the the uh the nature of it being open source soft, so it really is open source yes that anybody who acquires it is is able to add on to it but add on to it in a way that then benefits everybody back again it, we we are not trying to anticipate every single issue that people run into so we're actually welcoming people to continue developing it community wise absolutely and there there are other CQL engines written in other languages, and those uh, those development teams can take our .NET engine and analyze it and look at it and better understand the math necessary to run HEDIS. So they can um, ensure that their engine written in Java or what have you is capable of, of calculating HEDIS, because that's what we want. We want to make sure all the engines can do the necessary mathematics. All right. So tell us what's next. Whatever you're allowed to. If you're not allowed to, it's okay. <laughs> so what's next is uh, we are in the middle of um, of an early adopter program for digital quality, um, for digital content services. And this software and content offering that we have is going to start exposing 
the ecosystem to our digital HEDIS measures. Uh, so organizations can, can better understand the necessary data, really the data in the FHIR format that is going to be needed. I think this is a great step forward for uh, driving digital quality measurement in, in this country and really around the world because our engine, our calculator is now available to all and we're uh, we're now enabling the uh, the industry to to improve it and utilize it in a variety of different ways that will improve healthcare. NCQA CTO Ed Yerkeson. For more on the new quality engine and open source software for it, click the link included in this episode's description. Time again now for our fast fact segment, providing some quick information on the latest national health observance. The month of May is Osteoporosis Awareness and Prevention Month. Here are some fast facts from the Office on Women's Health, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. Osteoporosis is a bone disease that results from a loss of calcium, an element that's needed to keep bones strong and stable. Some consider osteoporosis to be a silent disease. A person can have no symptoms until they suddenly break a bone. Osteoporosis affects about 80% more women than men in the U.S. Why? Well, for one thing, women have thinner bones than men overall, and as menopause lowers estrogen levels, this can lead to a loss of calcium, or the inability to metabolize and maintain calcium levels in either way, leading to loss of bone density. But osteoporosis can be prevented, or at least forestalled, You can make sure you get enough calcium and vitamin D in your diet, that's for sure. Smoking can raise a risk for broken bones, so don't smoke. If you drink, keep drink in moderation. Too much alcohol can also change your metabolism and harm bone growth. And of course, too much drinking increases your chances of falling and breaking bones. NCQA has a HEDIS measure, by the way, along these lines. Osteoporosis screening in older women assesses the percentage of women 65 to 75 years of age who receive osteoporosis screening. I'll have a link for this measure in this episode's description, but here's a bit from our webpage. Osteoporotic fractures, particularly hip fractures, are associated with chronic pain and disability, loss of independence, decreased quality of life, and increased mortality. With appropriate screening and treatment, the risk of future osteoporosis-related fractures can be reduced. So stay strong, stay healthy, and keep that calcium flowing. Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask you for your thoughts on today's show. Email us anytime at communications at ncqa.org and be sure to include Inside Healthcare, those words, in your subject line. Makes it easier to sort and, and find you. And if you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. What non-Western therapy would most benefit you? Think about it, then tell us about it. And if you got a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you know somebody, maybe you would like to be that somebody, a guest on our show, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org and be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 106 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. 
Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate and share. You can find us anytime at blog.ncqa.org. Maybe that's where you are right now. But you can also find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.